Hi, this is Nora Jones, and I am pleased to be the host for this first episode in the new podcast series by Vista Higher Learning, The Language Imperative. And I know you're going to enjoy today's guest. Dorina Sackman Ibuwa is an award-winning educator who has spent the past 25 years empowering all students of diverse backgrounds at the K-16 and adult learner level, helping to build relationships that result in successful learning experiences for students and teachers. Listen as she explains the lens of life teaching approach, how to connect our students and ourselves to community and how to provide a transformative emotional intelligence background for education. You'll find her inspiring, motivating, empowering, and she'll celebrate you and your work and your students and help to create a more positive, powerful outcome for all. Enjoy the podcast. Thank you for tuning into Vista's new podcast series, The Language Imperative. This podcast series is brought to you by Vista Higher Learning. As the largest language and literacy publisher in the United States, Vista's singular focus is developing language and literacy solutions that meet the needs of all learners. Those learning a new language, improving an additional language, or perfecting their native language. Vista Higher Learning is committed to growing and innovating with you ensuring that you have the tools to meet the needs of all your students. One of the aspects of being a host for podcasts is I get a chance to have fantastic conversations before we even start, but I know that you're in for a treat with Dorina Sakmanibua and Dorina, welcome, Miss Dorito, to the podcast. Delighted to have you. Thank you for having me, Nora, and you said that beautifully. <laughs> oh, yay. Thank you. I didn't even check ahead of time, which is against my rules, but there you go. Dorina, you have your own consulting business called Believe Consulting, and there are so many aspects of anchors of thoughts that have made you the successful person you are in consulting the 2014 Florida Teacher of the Year, one of the top four finalists for the National Teacher of the Year, and got you some pats on the back and hugs from Dr. Jill Biden. That's a tremendous background for the richness of what you will share. Let's start with BELIEVE. What does that acronym and that basis of your work, what does that mean? Thanks for asking that. And it's it's interesting to hear it from you because sometimes you don't, you write those things down on your resume or curriculum vitae, but then you don't, when you hear it from somebody else, you go, wow, oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. I got a seat at the table. Wow. So thank you for that. Sometimes it's nice to hear it from other people, right? Absolutely. And I really appreciate those beautiful words. Believe actually started because it was the theme in 2014 for the teacher of the year in the state of Florida. So when I was chosen, because I don't believe teachers of the year win, I believe that they are chosen to represent the other teachers. So I never like that word win. It's not a competition. Nothing should be anyway. We should all collaborate anyway, especially in the education world. And the theme was believe. And it was because it was sponsored by Macy's, you know, in the Christmas time, you see the believe and it had all the believe. 
Well, I was so nervous when the governor called my name and I almost tripped off the podium and I didn't know what to say. And as many students as we know, students with, um, I call them varying exceptionalities, not exceptionalities, so we accept all kids. I too have some varying exceptionalities and my nervousness and my anxiety, I did not know what to say. But during those moments where I can't think, and I've always also told my students, you create an acronym out of the first word you see in front of you. So that's exactly what I did. I saw the word believe and I said, how can I do this? And I said, you know what, everyone, we should be the educators who lead to inspire and empower via excellence, empathy, all of it. And it has grown from excellence to empathy, from lead to live, all of them. But it is an acronym that matches even English when we talk about English learners. Uh, but it just was this acronym that I felt was so strong. But the word itself, if you just see the word believe, you know it's a strong word. What do you believe? You know, everyone puts this, um, if I may say, religious aspect of it. But what is that that you believe? What do you believe in society, humanity, education, yourself, your content as a teacher? As a human, what do you believe? It's not what you feel. That's different, what you believe. And that's where that word is. Every time I want people to see that and I present and I have my big bling believe word right in front of me because I want them to remember as I'm speaking and as we're interacting, what do you believe as we are listening to each other? And that word takes on so many different meanings to everyone. And uh, I just want everyone to believe in themselves, to believe in students and to believe in something. That is such a powerful introduction, and thank you for it. And as a linguist, I'm really resonating with the fact that that one word can be a jump-off point for so many things. And we will take a look at, and I know you will share, the, the many other things that you have. For a moment, when you are in front of language teachers, when you are in front of those that work in the language profession or support those in the language profession, where do you go with that word believe? Tease that out a little bit more because you, you made sure that it was distinct from some kind of an emotion. Help us to understand how that has an impact in what you do with language educators and professionals. That is a fantastic question. And I think one of the reasons I'm very passionate about what you believe rather than what you feel is that we live in a dichotomous society right now, especially in our beautiful country. And I get very verklempt when I say that because sometimes it really, this is where my emotion, I have to step back and also practice my emotional intelligence and self-awareness. But I digress. Really, it comes down to one must not use their emotion, even though it's wonderful because emotion fuels change, but it shouldn't be the only change. We should go on fact. And when you believe in your English learners, that's great because you feel for them. That's one thing. You're passionate about what you do. That, let that fuel you, of course. But the believe part of fact is important, such as Lau versus Nichols, the Supreme Court rulings, the actual laws of the United States that provide the opportunity for students, English learners, multilingual learners, to have that equitable education. So it's not just what you believe for feeling, it's the facts that are out there for those reluctant educators who are either innocently ignorant or arrogantly ignorant to really how we engage and teach English learners equitably. So we can have anything from Lau versus Nichols, the Castaneda versus Pickard, right? We have so many different ones that Plyer versus Doe, 
those parts are the fact part that can fuel how we can see our students first and then say, yep, this is the law. So you may feel a way about an undocumented student, but your feeling with all due respect teacher means nothing because the law states this, we must believe in the laws passed by the Supreme Court in the United States for education of English learners and equitable education. Then that will assist us in understanding that roster equals responsibility. No matter what, the law states this, so we must believe in that law. So then eventually you'll say, all right, I can't ignore this kid. This is the law. I can get in trouble for this, but uh, I got to really see this kid. And when you go past that and then work on cultural competence, you will see that you will believe even more in our English learners. Did that answer the question a little bit? Because I know I get real passionate about that. Oh, and the passion comes straight through your voice and absolutely everything. That's fantastic. Now we, we took a look at the fact that you begin to deal with the specific cultural aspect. You insert it carefully into that last statement. Tell me about that cultural side that you just tapped on. Once to settle into understanding, the rules are there. Let's start. Then you went to culture. Talk more about that. Oh, great. I mean, I love how you do this. You must, you're so good at this. Like it's a perfect natural progression into truly how a professional development of English learners should go. And what we use, what I usually do in the districts and states that I serve, um, it's, it's basically once you know what those rules are and you'll get the eye roll about the rules, but then it comes down to now, what is your cultural competence? Now, cultural competence basically is the academic term for lens of life, your perspective, not how you how the world sees you, but how you see the world. And a lot of times I do it uh, in the trainings of teachers is that I want them to think of a camera and a square camera, the old school ones with the flashes, the youngins might have to Google that, but you know what I mean. And uh, gracefully, I say that, Nora. And we have the the camera with the flash and you have the four things around you. And I want you to think of, and I ask the teachers, I want you to think of the four pillars of how you see the world. Again, not how the world sees you. So for example, I will never be able to go through this life without having a New York lens right? Being raised as an, in a New York family, a New York City cop household, a teacher, uh, you know, household, my parents, a very, very specific Catholic upbringing, you know, a very on Long Island, right? I know I sound like Joey Bag of Donuts. I get really excited, but yeah, I have a strong Long Island accent. And uh, it's very much so that's just one and that's surface, but the deeper ones are perhaps um, the fact that uh, being married to a man of color really impacts how I see the world now. Being a teacher, I can't go on the line at Starbucks without seeing a parent or on the line at Target without seeing a parent where I where I just say to myself, my goodness, this um, lens of a teacher, there's a teachable moment that's right there. But then again, the other lens is I'm unable to have kids. So now I see this teachable moment from the teacher lens. And then I say, why are they not teaching that child math right there? Well, my perspective gap, as Adam Grant says, is because I don't have kids, maybe that parent just wants two minutes of silence. So as you can see, I'm already modeling how my perspective can be different because of the lens 
of which I see the world. And everybody's lens is different and it switches. So I always encourage and ask teachers to practice. What are your four, maybe five pillars? Are you a military person? Uh, is it your political ideology that makes you frame it? Your religious, um, your upbringing, what deeper culture, you know, that iceberg of culture, the surface, it's not about that. What's the deeper part of the surface uh, of the deeper culture that comes down here that really allows you to say, this is how I see the world. And from there, that is what def helps you define your own cultural understanding and lens of life. And then once they do that, that's where I want them to take that lens off physically. So I actually make cards and tell the teachers to physically take that off because that lens can greatly influence how you see the child standing there. Not the Guatemalan kid, but the kid whose name is Mario and he's from Guatemala. Not qualifying it with a country that can automatically change your, the perspective of how you feel of that child based on a lens right? The Mexican kid, maybe your personal ideology about Mexico, about undocumented students can impact the innocence of this child. And now you start calling the kid the Mexican kid rather than, okay, Luis from, you know, uh, Hidalgo, Mexico, rather than Luis from Mexico. And so these are all the different parts that we can teach. But first, we must understand the lens of life of a teacher so that when they do see the children, they can go, what, what? This is my lens. I'm seeing it through this part, middle class, white, middle class, African-American, however it is that you're seeing it and go, wait a second, I've got to see it here. This is my lens. I can't put my lens onto this child. I can only take it away, appreciate and understand the child so that I don't create that. And I know it's a word that people don't like to hear, but it is a bias. And we have to make sure, are we innocently ignorant to that? Again, or arrogantly ignorant to that as educators with multicultural students. And with beautifully presented again, and here comes a question based on that. When you are in front then of educators for whom this is probably a new concept, certainly a revelation of their own perspective and where it might come from, and then you are asking them to take those lenses off. What kinds of approaches do you use to help them to embrace the question that you are asking, the, the journey that you're asking them to take so that there is, <laughs> I'm not going to use a good word here, but I will anyway, I suppose say compliance a growth, there we go, that's better, growth in their understanding, a desire to commit to this pathway you're showing them? Hmm. I think it's a great question, and I think I'm actually going to go Socratic on you and bring it back to you, that if you were in front of this professional development or you were in this professional development, and I ask you to do your pillars, and then the ability to take off those pillars what feelings, now we can talk about feelings because this is a very vulnerable process to understand one's own cultural competence. What feelings would, would you think or observe or have as an educator right now for you? Or what do you think would be around in, in a setting where we have some reluctant teachers as well as having some very, I'm ready for this teachers? Because there is that dichotomy, right? We have the teachers that are like, oh man, I, gotta, I, I have no time for this. I teach 
gifted. Yes, we should have gifted EL in the class. I teach AP. Yeah, half our Saudi kids are already doing 12th grade and they're in ninth grade. So yeah, they should be there. So these are the things we want to teach, but we do the incremental is monumental kind of process. But how would you feel in that setting? Because I really want to hear your expertise in that as well. Well, and it's interesting because the first place I went to was, in fact, that sense of potentially feeling overwhelmed. Vulnerability is not something that I struggle with so much because I have worked on the importance of vulnerability in my life and in the workshops that I have done for others. It's such an extent that I just believe in it 100% and embrace it and go forward. The feeling of being exhausted. In this educational world, with so many students, in our courses, the volatility of the of the districts and the schools in which uh, such a description as you provided are found. What are some of those then? Here, I'm coming back to a question for you, though. I'm afraid. What are some of those questions that are or directions that you go with your specific approach to your workshops that then bring a resolution? for at least that concern and the others that you have experienced from people that you've been around? I think what you just said about the vulnerability, it is a very difficult process. I create norms in the beginning to let them know that I'm here to make you think, but I'm not here to actually tell you anything. Uh, That is a huge part of being a really good facilitator, to facilitate the dialogue, to get people to think. And some people do not trust people in that aspect. So creating that norm of, I am here to make you think. I'm also here to let you know that I'm not calling you out and I'm not calling you in. I am here to just let you really have some food for thought. And the difference between call out and call in, by the way, calling out is tweeting out something you don't like. Calling in is saying, hey, listen, I think I really was uncomfortable with the term that you used. So I was wondering if maybe we could talk about that a little bit or in the future, don't use that. That's the learning process that we need. But a lot of times teachers are under a lot of pressure. There's a lot going on. You have students with IEPs, special education, ELL, ENL, EFL, 401k, 503, I don't know what all those acronyms are in education, but at the same time, teachers are so overwhelmed. They're saying themselves, here's another PD that I have. Well, wait a second. This isn't just about all of those children in differentiation, which is our responsibility as teachers anyway. It's about you. It's about you're doing a job of service. You are not on Wall Street. You are doing a job of service to your community. And your job is to create an unbiased education of equity to give all students, regardless of anything, regardless of socioeconomic status, regardless of zip code, regardless of language ability, regardless of learning ability, all children have the, the, the right for this education. And you go into that classroom and say, okay, what is my lens and how do I do this for all kids? But if you already go into the classroom going, great, I got a bunch of ESOL kids. And now I got this kid from over here. I got these refugees here. I got a bunch of sped kids that can't control themselves. If you're already doing that in the classroom, well, that's why I teach that. And along with that comes something that a, a phenomenal teacher, Sarah Saeed, taught me, which was JEDI, J-E-D-I, Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion. And I took that Jedi acronym and went far further. And I said, wait a second, a Jedi doesn't roll their eye. 
they ask why. And that's all I want teachers to do. I want them to say, listen, I don't need you to answer this question. You go, I always have them team up with one person called their soulmate. And they go to that one person. I don't want them to share out their lens. This is a very personal situation where you start evaluating and reflecting on who you are in front of those children. And that allows you to grow and understand. But it isn't to, let's share out our lenses of life. No, this is you share with yourself because those lenses can change and you can change. I'm not telling you to. I'm simply planting that seed of personal growth and alongside emotional intelligence that we also do because there's a direct correlation between cultural competency and strong emotional intelligence, which creates incredible teachers. But we want this to happen because we catch ourselves. I catch myself all the time. IEP meeting, I didn't do my paperwork, I roll my eye. Wait, wait a second. Why did I just roll my eye? I have a responsibility to this child. Hold on, a Jedi doesn't roll their eye, they ask why. Why did I do that? Because I did not have the time management to put this together. Okay, I'm gonna have to reevaluate my lens and see myself. See how that works? So I always tell teachers, this is a journey of self that takes time, just like the writing. It's a process, not a product. And this can take for the whole time of your life, right? You know, people talk about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I don't. I talk about the six sicker tribe of the Blackfoot Nation, where Maslow got everything. And I hope teachers do look up, if they get anything out of this listening, look up Blackfoot Nation, where Maslow got that information. And from there, you can see this circle, circular way in which we see, and the philosophy of the six sicker tribe that unbelievably matches children more so than the self-actualization of a triangle. But throughout life, we want that self-actualization eventually, but everyone's so quick to think they're gonna have it. Teaching and lenses of life and cultural competency and emotional intelligence of being a teacher is a process and incremental is monumental. And as long as we plant that seed to get the teachers thinking every year about that, they will grow to be the teachers every child deserves in the classroom. This idea that especially challenges the instant results culture is powerfully expressed there. Is this part of the work that you that you bring as a certified transformational intelligence specialist? What what is that certification that you have? What does transformative emotional intelligence consist of? Or have you just described it? Um, kind of described it, but really it comes down to the importance of the difference. I, I know I talk about Wall Street, nothing wrong with Wall Street, but I want people to understand, well, maybe there is, but that's another podcast. But like, there's a, there's an issue in which we really talk about, um, the difference between acts of service in our community, firefighters, cops, nurses, EMTs, teachers, Right. We all get the discount at the taco place on Tuesdays because we are having, we're thank you for your service, military, right? We are, it's, it's what chooses us. Teaching chose us, right? Even though we said, even the youngins now, I'm gonna try it, see what happens. You're still drawn to it in some way to try to see what happens, right? Teaching is a gift that was given to us. It was called to us, all those acts of service. So why am I incorporating that with emotional intelligence? 
There were two philosophy professors and psychology professors at Texas A&M Corpus Christi who saw that there was a difference of the emotional intelligence that Daniel Goleman was putting out in 1995 for corporate, how to create a great corporate team, if you will, or how to choose the right people for a successful corporate business. That's business related. These two incredible people with their theories of Salovey and Mayer in 69 decided to say, you know what? What about the people of service? What about students? What about military? All the people I previously mentioned. There's a difference of emotional intelligence for them. Emotional intelligence across the board is humans, yes, but in the context of one's employment. So then that is why Dr. Gary Lowe and Dr. Hammett created this exact emotional intelligence called transformative emotional intelligence for those who do service. And I realized that this is what teachers aren't aware of. So they can go to Barnes and Nobles and pick up a book and say, this is it. This is a great book for me on, on emotional intelligence. You'll get an aspect of it, but is it through the lens of service? And from there, I believe that that's why it's important. And so I became, I'm in 29th grade getting my doctorate in emotional intelligence and pre-service teachers right now. And I'm losing my mind right now, but I'm just, like I said, 29th grade. I'm about to be 30th grade and I'm hoping I'll graduate at 30th grade. But uh, (laughs) once I get my doctorate, I'm so excited. But within that time of doing this doctorate for eight years, and side note, I myself have an IEP and as a special needs student, incremental is monumental and we should not as a great teacher Emily Francis said they could do their students especially our ELL students do not need that four-year mark if it takes four to six so what what timeline is that why are we putting timelines on people but I revert back to now that I have during this process of getting my uh, my doctoral degree and suffering um, I actually wound up getting certified as an emotional intelligence coach a TEI coach And so I'm a trainer, a coach, and my role and my gift and my job and my dream is to go and teach and train teachers about emotional intelligence, become trained in this particular theory, and then they go back to the schools and it becomes a part of professional development. And as research has shown, there is zero out there in transformative emotional intelligence for teachers. There's SEL, 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 But there's a difference. If we know our own emotional intelligence and our own cultural competency, we will be able to naturally embed the SEL needed for all students, specifically English learners, trauma-informed practices, SEL for students, understanding the five competencies. But we have to know our own cultural competencies and our own EI to do that. That's uh, transformational indeed. When we take a look at the special experience, Darina, of language learners, here the focus happens to be on the English learners, and there is so much of an environment around English learners, but I'd like to pinpoint for just a moment the nature of language and language learning itself for how it is that what you do affects that or how that affects how you approach your work. Working with language, language learning, the language experience. Well, this it's, it's a very deep question that can go in many different directions, but 
as a polyglot who speaks five languages, <laughs> and I'm very blessed to speak five languages, I also wanted to figure out why the heck can I do that, right? <laughs> so what allowed that to happen? Well, not only did I realize that with my learning disability, I turned with vulnerability, turned it into an ability, and wanted other people to know that perhaps I have dyscalculia and one plus one is 11 to me and I have a difficulty in mathematics and sciences, but I had the ability to truly overcompensate for my reading issues and my attention that I was constantly orally saying things and having great discussion that it left my brain the ability to learn language. That's the deeper neuroscience aspect of why for me. But what about other children who are coming in? What about other adults who are coming in? Now, there is a direct correlation between language learning and your amygdala, right? And that neocortex and the information that can process. And we all know that. And when we go down to also the neuroscience of language learning first, and we understand when children feel safe, right? And here we go to Maslow or here we go to Blackfoot Nation, where they feel safe to be themselves, where they feel comfortable, where they know that and the biggest one is safe, and they feel like they could be themselves, that is where language can learn. If in fact they don't feel safe, they're hungry, they don't feel well, they're overwhelmed, or they don't feel accepted, that whole process of where the information process in the neocortex and the frontal lobe, information will not pass out because that amygdala goes the fight, the flight, or the freeze. And these are things that teachers should know of why students don't respond in certain ways. It's not that they're, I'm not good in math, right? It's the uh, understanding if there is something going on to nip that in the bud, like myself, or uh, I, I can't learn language. Maybe there's something else going on. So it's the human side of things by understanding why students are responding or not responding to language. So I believe there's a direct correlation of your own lens of life to make children feel safe and loved in your classroom, humanize the learning experience, to have the emotional intelligence and self-awareness to be aware of one's own lens of life, to take it off, but also to really just see the child and get to know the student's stories before you teach them, not just linguistically, but knowing that student's story so that you can approach the learning process in something different. That learning a language is beautiful, but learning another language is an asset and that we should use appreciative inquiry to go into every single language learner, every EL or multilingual child that walks into your classroom. You have to go, huh, well, you speak one more language than I do. So uh, you're one up on me there. So goodness, language is an asset. Having that first language or second or third, like many of our students, and it is just a brilliant thing to know that when a teacher sees a child, a brand new kid and go, oh, great, there's a little world on my roster. I got a child who doesn't speak English. No, I have a child who English is not their heritage language. They speak another language. What an asset. My goodness, what a gifted child. Let me assist them to help them learn another language so that maybe that student would be unbelievable in those two languages. I have a role in that? Man, there you go. That's going to be the teacher that I am. That's my dream. Imagine that. <laughs> Imagine that. That is worth imagining and keeping right in front of oneself all day, every day. Why? Tell the world why again, when in your own words, why would a multilingual person be exciting to have? Instead of, well, that's 
That's nice, but no big deal. There's more important things going on. Empowerment of self, which is great. Building confidence in people. But truly, the and I learned this from my own experiences as an educator as well as a polyglot. Sitting in an, in an airplane with a man in the center, I had a lens of this man was talking without a, with the speaker going, and he was having a video chat with his wife and his kid, and he was yelling in Spanish, and I'm rolling my eye, not a Jedi at this moment, because I'm exhausted. Why aren't you using headphones? Why aren't you doing all this stuff? And then I have to practice what I preach and say, a Jedi doesn't roll their eye, they ask why. And I said, you know what? This guy is probably just missing his family. You don't have kids. Perspective gap. Let the man do what he has to do. You're not flying. Let him do what he has to do until the plane takes off. Relax. But I needed to have that emotional intelligence, that self-awareness, and that lens. He gets off the phone. He, as he's about to get off, I happened to hear him say something in Spanish. I laughed. He looked over and said, did you understand? I said, yes. And then he asked me to photobomb and see his little son and say something in Spanish because he liked my accent. Why I'm telling you this story is that it turned into, and this is the God's honest truth, it turned into one of the most incredible moments on a plane because we were all in the exit row. So he was in the middle, I was on the right, and then another gentleman was on the left on his phone talking. I already, with my lens, perpetuated a stereotype of this man in camouflage and a baseball hat and everything else that I thought this man was going to be. Again, I did not practice what I preached. And I'm talking to this man in Spanish going, I'm probably annoying the man next to me, right next to him. Long story longer, because that's what I do. He was sitting there and we were talking that he's from Chile and he had this experience. His wife is from Russia. They met in Chile. He's here for graphics and a couple of other things. We started talking. He loved my accent. He can't believe that this American girl speaks Spanish. And then I stopped for a minute and the other man got off the phone. And in Spanish, the man who I perpetuated the stereotype for, the American man, American man, I did quotes, air quotes there. He said, in Spanish, oh, Tu eres brasileña to me. And I said, no, I'm not Brazilian. Oh, you speak with a Brazilian accent. And sir, I lived in Chile for 11 years. Now, all three of us engaged in a conversation in Spanish that you would have never imagined. And it, the man almost, when I say he filled up, he kept on saying, I am blessed. I am so grateful. This is amazing. I never thought this. So he perpetuated stereotypes of Americanas, Americanas, Americans as well. And then all of a sudden, the, the flight attendant came up, started speaking to us in English and said, are you all able and willing? You're in the exit road. Do you all speak English? And then I went, of course we do. We speak English and Spanish so we can help two pe different people on this plane. And I'm a poly. Anybody else speak another language? Let's do this. And so the other person on the other side of the emergency said, yes, I speak French. And I said, oh, vous parlez français? Oui, je parle comment aussi? Alors, now we have French, Spanish, and English in the exit row. We can help everybody on this freaking plane. And that is what being multilingual is about. I have chills telling you this story. I'm getting emotional because we bring the world to a better place. When language is culture, learning another language, there is no dominant language. English is a hierarchy, unfortunately, but English should not be a dominant language. It should be another language to have in your arsenal of bringing the world closer and better. And that flight was the exact 
this is an explicit depiction of what my dream is for the world, that the ability to speak another language brings us closer together. And that is what I hope. And I hope that that little story that just happened two weeks ago addresses your, your question and shows the power of being a multilingual person and how culture and language is culture and what we can do with it. And imagine now the kid in your classroom who could be that child, right? And that person in the future changing that world. Yes, that person in the future and that person sitting in that classroom right now changing the world right around that child. For someone else who, again, of their peer group who may need that hope that comes from watching one of their peers begin to understand their power. One of the things that you have on your very robust and exciting website, which includes ways that people can get in contact with you and interact with you and take a look at your consulting business and put you into their lives, is you were mentioning about connecting content to community. And you just provided an extraordinary story of the development of, a, of a, an empowered mini community right there in that flight two weeks ago. And in the classroom, what kinds of experiences of community have you been able to both experience yourself, but also in particular to share with those that you bring your insights and uh, opportunities to? That's a great question. The English learning community is very strong, very powerful, but there's a downside to that. The advocacy a lot of times turns into the your kids, my kids, our kids. What I observe is that there is not one English learner who is in our field of second language acquisition, of bilingual education, of dual language, that does not advocate for their students However, a lot of times when I'm in that field and I'm talking to English learners, uh, excuse me, English learning uh, academics and people, uh, teachers, I am seeing that I'm preaching to the choir, unless you're a newcomer teacher that needs the assistant. What we really need is for the multilingual language community, the EL community, the ENL, EFL, ESOL, all the acronyms that are out there, but I'll use the term EL because that's what uh, the Department of Language Acquisition in the, in, in the government department of, um, of English language acquisition, OELA.org, they use English learner uh, for paperwork and ELL for paperwork and multilingual ML for uh, conversations. Uh, so I'll interchange, but mostly I'll use EL. And what I'm seeing is that everyone knows and they're speaking their languages and they all know what the difficulties are, right? So I feel like it's almost, we all know what's going on. We see the inequities, we see the issues, but we're preaching to each other. Who is listening to our advocacy? So as much as I love being there and seeing there, I have nothing but positive, unbelievable things. Could there be better practices of differentiated instruction? Sure. Do I go into English language classes and show them how to do that? Sure. But the, the initial understanding of kids and all of us are there. What we really need is to take those experts in the field within each school and bring it to content area teachers. 
That's what I want to see. So I believe so strongly in what I see in the English learning departments. I do, and I know that they have the best interest in kids in mind. There are a few things that should be consistent. We work on those, but then passing it over where we're seeing the inequities is, and I'm gonna call it in, not out, administration. Deferring the expertise to you, the EL teacher, the EL specialist, the ENL person in the district. Our administration in every school needs to see English learners as an incredible asset to your school, multilingual, multicultural, but also you should know as an administrator the rules, the regulations, the understandings, the inequities that you see in the classrooms. It is all part of it. They have an enormous amount when it comes to special education. And we know there's a very big difference, yet everyone pools everybody together because it's easier and that's inequitable. How do we get our English learners the equitable education needed? It's by talking to administration that they know what's going on too. It starts with all due respect, although I believe education should be lattice over ladder, right? It should be a lattice of collective agency and not a ladder of hierarchy. We, it starts from the top. And if the administrator understands the importance of and the asset-based understanding of, of an, an appreciative inquiry of English learners, then they could say to themselves, okay, content area teachers, you don't put baby in a corner. You don't put them on the, on the computer. I'm going to walk into the classrooms and I want to make sure there's equitable education going on for EL. I need to see in your lesson plans, do you know how to scaffold? But if that is not relayed to content area teachers, they are going to ignore it and they're going to continue to teach teacher-centered and they're going to teach the lens of all heritage English speakers. And that is what I see that we can come together and educate those, again, I'm using these terms, innocently ignorant or arrogantly ignorant. There's two types of teachers when it comes to English learning in the content areas. I love my EL kids, but I don't know what to do. Help! That's an innocently ignorant person to English learning in content area. And then the other one is, I got a scope and sequence that I have to do. I got a test for these kids. I got everything going on. I ain't got no time to be dealing with these kids right now. Are you kidding me? I already have kids with quote unquote learning loss, which I don't believe in that term. So now we just came out of a pandemic. You're telling me now that I got to go help this one and this one and this one from all these different countries. And I'm supposed to do nah, I don't think so. That's arrogantly ignorant, right? We have got to nip this in the bud and work on the innocently ignorant to be the allies to teach the arrogantly ignorant to create a cohesive, unbelievable community where the acceptance and uh, not tolerance, the acceptance and understanding and rules of English learners for equity. And that's where we get our Jedi teachers all throughout the classrooms. Powerful. The concept of that lattice and of growing the, the team that actively desires the effective education and inclusion of students is such an important concept. Where are we headed in that, in this country in particular, in the United States? Are we headed in the direction of helping to make that happen? It's a tough thing that I'm afraid to answer because I, I don't have stats on this. And I've often said I don't want to talk about my you know, feelings. I want to make sure I have facts based on this. But in my observation of across the country, 
right? I want to do 50 states before I'm 50. And I've got like six more to go, but I'm only 29. So I got plenty of time. (laughs) But (laughs) I'm just kidding. I really am over. I'm over my time now. But in all of the states that I have visited, I in the in the eight, 10, nine, nine years that I've been doing this, I have seen a regression. What used to be gung ho has been, oh, no. What used to be, I'm ready, let's go, let's do this, let's get this professional development has been something different. Um, It bases on state, it bases on executive orders of governors of various states. That is, uh, it it has become a political statement. Um, It has become more political than ever. And now one's political stance lends has become stronger in those four pillars that I discussed previously, that it actually is perhaps the answer of why they would not engage an English learner. Uh, And it seems to be almost possibly accepted in certain people. So that is why lens and cultural competency is really, really important, right? So this this is a big deal going on that we are seeing more funding, which is lovely, but are we seeing the proper professional development to the right teachers? Again, we don't want just the funding to go into people who are already on board. It is really the people that we need to be in those professional development environments where they will see, because once they learn it, they will see that understanding some of the strategies and getting to know is there's a difference between linguistic because they say these work for all kids. All these strategies work. Yes, they do. As long as you can decipher the difference between a linguistic reason for this strategy, a cognitive reason for this strategy for special education, if you will, or SLD, and then a heritage English speaking strategy for a reluctant learner who's just exhausted and wants to watch TikTok. And so this is where we want to have this conversation. Where are we putting these funds to make sure we have that equitable education? Because what I'm seeing is, it, again, it comes from that administration. There's the possibility, there's grants, there's everything. We're ready for it. But there's also something called pobrecita syndrome, or in Portuguese, I call it tadinho syndrome. And tadinho syndrome just basically means, I love these kids. They're so good. I just don't know how to work with them, but I'm going to socially promote them because I didn't do the paperwork and I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I don't have the time. There's too many kids. There's not a format in place. I'm sorry. I don't know what to do. So I didn't document anything, but I know I'm not supposed to. But I, I don't know what to do. Let me just give them a C and move on. Now we are responsible for creating those long-term English learners then and the children who go, I don't feel like I learned anything. At 16, I have the right to drop out and go become a roofer. Let me go do it. Not saying there's anything wrong with roofing. Goodness. What I paid for my roof. I wish I were a roofer. But at the same time, we want to give them the ability to say, I have this opportunity to do this, 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 and this. The opportunities offered, not just, I did not feel represented. I did not feel safe in my classrooms. I did not feel I learned anything. I'm 16, I'm out right? And so we are creating that if we don't nip this in the bud immediately by having this understanding of how we can come together collectively and say, wait a second, put the lens of how you feel about all English learners aside and let's teach all children. Roster equals responsibility. So many important reminders, once again, of the legality of need, 
then the personal commitment that can follow and the pathways for each person to understand how they get there while, as you put it so beautifully earlier, keeping their contemplation of where they are as private as they wish, rather than exposing things out in the world. That's so important. Dorina, I'm going to ask you here as we come to the end of what could be hours of conversation because it's just uh, what you share, insights and exhortations that you give are so powerful and I know highly effective for, for those that you have worked with and for those that will listen to this podcast. What is it that you would turn to the listening audience right now and say, I have not yet said, or let me say again in a different way, or what is your last few minutes of exhortation, invitation, reminder, however you would like to define that? Well, first of all, this has just been incredible, and you're right. I could talk to you for hours, Nora. You're just brilliant and wonderful, and you just reek of love and spill love and compassion for what you do and that's the theme that we really want the end result if i could leave it in one word it's to love what we do but to love the children that we do it for and it's important that the way that we could actually do this is start with our own lens of life how we can actually see the world what are our pillars what are our visions and values for ourselves that's what it creates and how does that impact each child that's in my classroom when I do that, then I need to work and see about my emotional intelligence, my self-awareness, my ability to interact with others, my commitment ethic, my assertion, all of that as an educator and how I can use that, my time management. How am I doing that? How are administrators using the time management for educators, right? Uh, value venting over victim venting, right? Don't be, I don't have enough time. It's why don't I have enough time? Let's try to solve this. And I know that's another podcast. Um, I think it's also, again, the lens of life, the cultural competency, the emotional intelligence, the roster equals responsibility, TLC squared, tender loving care, but tough love culture as well, to balance and stop the pobrecito genius syndrome of our English learners, asset of a second language, um, using the term heritage language as opposed to native language is important too to remember. Most importantly, that I get very passionate, but I'm not yelling at you. I just sound like I am because I am a New Yorker. Uh, so when you do listen to this podcast, I'm not yelling at anybody. I just really am making sure that people are aware that I'm seeing these things in the past as a 25-year teacher as well as in uh, a consultant to educators around. So again, cultural competency, emotional intelligence, TLC squared, roster equals responsibility, Blackfoot Nation, love, compassion, empathy, collective agency, appreciative inquiry, and believe. Be the educators who lead to inspire and empower via empathy. I think I'll leave them with that. Thank you. Beautifully said and every bit appreciated. Thank you for sharing so many important and passionate experiences with us today. Thanks, Dorina Sackman. Thanks, Nora. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. As an educator, you have the power to reimagine and reshape education and thus 
the world. Vista Higher Learning is committed to giving you the best programs and resources to ensure that your students succeed in school and in life. Vista is committed to being your partner in education. Bring Vista along for your education journey. For more information about Vista solutions for your K-12 classroom, visit vistahigherlearning.com. Thank you.